Welcome once again to Jim and Pat's Glasgow West End chat. Everything about Glasgow's West End. My name's Jim Byrne and the Pat in the title is Pat Byrne. And this is episode 20. Now in this episode I interview Professor Jerry Carruthers, the current occupant of the Francis Hutchison Chair of Scottish Literature. Sounds extremely important. Now, I've actually known Professor Jerry Crothers basically all my life because when I was young, living in Clybank, he was my wee brother John's best pal. So back then, I knew him as Jerry, somebody who loved music, somebody who played music, and somebody who ran uh, a fanzine called Delight and Disorder, which, strangely enough, my wife Pat was also involved in. Uh, so that's why that's how I know Jerry. Everybody else knows Jerry probably because he's one of the preeminent uh, academics uh, in relation to Robert Burns and also many other leading figures in Scottish literature, including let me see now Walter Scott, Muriel Spark, uh, Alexander Geddes, 18th century literature. And the history of Scottish studies, studies, history of Scottish studies, and Scottish criticism. So, I've known Jerry for a long time as a pal, I suppose, although I don't see him that often. So, interviewing him was an incredibly interesting uh, process because I learned an entire different aspect of his life, and it is incredibly fascinating. So, listen up. This is a good one. Okay, before we go on, as usual, if you don't mind, could you give us a nice comment, uh, give us a star review, because apparently all these things really matter in terms of people actually finding us, and I would really appreciate that. Okay, enough of that. Uh, Let's go over there to Glasgow University and find out what Jerry's got to say for himself. Okay, here we are, Jim and Pat's Glasgow West End chat, and I'm here with Jared Carruthers, an old friend of mine from Claybank, uh, particularly close friend of my brother John, who's a couple of years below me, and Jared is currently, and I'm not going to tell you what he currently is because I'm sure I'll get it wrong, <laughs> but he's a professor at Glasgow University, specialising, I think, <laughs> in Scottish history, Burns, Sir Walter Scott, and other stuff. Mm-hmm. So. And what I'm going to do, Jerry, is I'm going to basically ask you mm-hmm. questions which are to elicit your story uh, <laughs> about how you got to where you mm-hmm. are, uh, your background, you know, how you, where you grew up, uh, mm-hmm. what your interests were that meant that you ended up mm-hmm. teaching what you're teaching and doing research and what you're doing research. Mm-hmm. So that's basically all I'm going to tell you about it. Mm-hmm. So if you tell me who you are, and then we'll just take it from mm-hmm. there. Well, maybe one thing to say, Jim, is that I'm Francis Hutchison Professor of Literature at the University of Glasgow, and I'm childishly proud of that title uh-huh. because Francis Hutchison is one of my heroes, and as a boy coming from a Catholic background, that might sound odd, because Francis Hutchison was a great Presbyterian figure mm-hmm. who is sometimes seen in gender terms as the father of the Scottish Enlightenment. So I'm very delighted to hold that chair and that chair allows me to cross literature, history, politics 
a range of interests that I have, especially in the long 18th century, but also beyond. And you mentioned uh, Robert Burns, and of course that's a particular interest. I'm general editor of the New Oxford edition of the works of Robert Burns, which is going to be 10 volumes by the time it's completed right. in a few years' time. So that's my kind of playground, yeah, 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 if you yeah. like. Well, I mean, I'm going to go back in time shortly, but I'm really interested in that particular period in Scottish history myself, mostly from the art point of view, mm -hmm. <laughs> because the artists of the time were also involved in the politics and mm -hmm. thought. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to think of useless names. Uh, will come back to me. Mm -hmm. But some of the folk that were... Uh, based in Glasgow University and surrounding mm -hmm. here, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. pretty famous members of the Enlightenment and thinkers. Yes. Uh, and they all, you know, because I walk into Hinterian quite a lot mm -hmm. and I look at all these mm -hmm. portraits. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, yes, you've got Alan Ramsey Jr., Alan you've Ramsey. got uh, Rayburn. Exactly. You've got a whole bunch of these guys who, to some extent, one version of Enlightenment art is they're doing the empirical thing. Enlightenment philosophy is very good at observation, and in a sense, Enlightenment painting does something similar. But it also does the Romantic thing, because Scotland's at the forefront of the new Romantic movement. In other words, being less rational, being more impressionistic to some extent, and being more about things like nature, which right. begins as an Enlightenment inquiry in Scotland and ends up as a literary movement. Burns, the poet of nature, right. Walter Scott and landscape, right, okay. and painting all fits into that. Right, so right. it's a fascinating area that I'm never tired of exploring one way or another. Yeah, I mean, I know we teen a bit about <coughs> Alan Ramsey just because I did a course on Scottish art uh, probably about 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, so when I'm looking at his stuff and I'm reading the bits of card and I'm reading some of the books and things, you mm. know, he actually stopped doing that because his, his, his interest in the politics and the writing mm -hmm. I think he eventually decided that art was a kind of lowly, lowly thing compared to these bigger questions. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the debate about art is quite funny, Jim. You know, you go back to at least the 18th century and debates about the utility, the value of art going down to the present day, including, you know, fights surrounding Creative Scotland or whatever you like. And I guess we're no different from other yeah, cultures yeah. in that one of the things that's particularly pleased me recently is I've been involved a lot in dare I call it, the Greenock cultural scene, promoting Greenock writers and also Paisley writers. Right. And in general terms, the thing that I've been pleased about is working with the council in Greenock, Inverclyde Council, working with Paisley Museum. These obviously deprived communities realise that man doesn't live in bread alone. Culture is also part of well-being, whether that's music, yeah, painting, absolutely. whatever. Yeah. So, you know, people will sometimes ask me to justify my position as a scholar on the humanities, and part of my answer to that at least is, well, it is about human life, the history of human life and human life in the present, which is often about being creatively or even intellectually expressive. And these are important to our functions as, 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 as creatures. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, well, I think... Uh where you are now is probably clear from the way you're talking and the, and the, and the, people, you're, the people you're talking about <laughs> and obviously mm -hmm. the spread of your interests. So, as I was saying in my introduction, I'm interested in how you get from being a young person mm. growing up in Claybank. Yeah. And, you know, for people who are listening to the podcast, <laughs> I know you because I also grew up in Claybank yes. a few hundred yards away from yeah. you. <laughs> so you are White Crook. Yes. Street and I was in Barn Street yeah. or, and uh, so you were 
we're of a pal and a wee brothers. But I kind of know you in that sense. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say that I know your journey. Yeah. I know, you know, so if you can tell me a wee mm-hmm. bit about what you remember from growing yeah. up in Claybank and what you were thinking about back that, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. kind of started you on the journey. Yeah. I know it's a long journey. And yeah. There's plenty of turns, but at least give me some kind of sense uh, mm-hmm. of that, you know. Well, to start off on that, Jim, occasionally I think, I've become everything that I didn't intend oh, to yeah. become. Okay. And I'm very aware the older I get that life and career and all these things are more accidental than motivated. Yeah. But nonetheless, I can see some clear paths through my life, I think. Talk about growing up in Clyde Bank. Among my earliest memories, as you say, I was only a few, few hundred yards away from you streetwise. And even... In my street, White Crook Street, I remember being a wee bit of an outsider, not because I was a relatively swatty boy, which I was, but I was also good at football, and so that was okay. But John Brown's Engineering owned most of the houses in White Crook Street, Mm -hmm. and there were very few Catholics, although that changed. And I remember quite vividly being told more than once by we playmates, this isn't really your country. And they were getting this from Feather, who worked in the yards, and my father worked in the yards, but his Protestant uncle spoke for him. And Tom, his uncle, who didn't have a bigoted bone in his body, when he spoke for my father said, "Ah, it's not that all these other Catholics, he he doesn't overdo the drink. So he was one of a select few, and I remember holidays of obligation where my father and the other Catholics would rush down at lunchtime, stand at the back of mass, and be on again, missing their lunch, and they were a tiny minority. Mm -hmm. And among my earliest memories then, I'd been part of a country where I was told, you don't quite belong here. And even if it hasn't been quite as... It'd be over-egging it to say it was a conscious mission, but I remember from quite an early age thinking, I want to know about this country that I supposedly don't belong to. (laughs) To the extent that I've become a professor in Scottish studies. Right, okay. Which shows... Probably tells you something about my stubbornness. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also that working class background imbued in me certain interests and certain politics that haven't much shifted. Um, I remained a long time a member of the Labour Party, finally leaving over Iraq. And the other thing that was very clear to me from a very, very early age, when in and out, was Catholic social teaching, mm-hmm. which I continue to value in all kinds of ways, even though I worry about the way the church has gone over the past two decades or whatever, gone more conservative. So these strands of faith and politics and been plunged into a situation where you're actively been told, this ain't your culture. These things from early on hooked me and propelled me in some way into whatever it is I've now become. That said, I was also very much an Anglophile, mm-hmm. and as an undergraduate, I virtually avoided Scottish literature. Right, okay. Um, later on, I, I thought, why am I avoiding this? And as a postgraduate student, I plunged into it. I was avoiding Burns the whole time because I didn't much like literature in Scots. Mm-hmm. And eventually reading Burns, thought, bloody hell, this is great stuff, to the extent that I'm now... Burns's major editor, actually. So there's all kinds of places where I've come from where I can see the logical origin, and there's all kinds of places where I'm now also, which 
were kind of, I don't say rocky roads to get here, but they weren't, it wasn't inevitable that I'd end up doing doing right. these things. Right, okay. So, I mean, you came from, I suppose, what we call a working class background mm-hmm. in Claybank, as I did myself. Uh, so, I mean, I can't really remember, because I think I told you before, I've got a terrible <laughs> memory, but, uh, so, you went to university. Mm-hmm. So when was that, and what, what were you doing? Um... I went in the early 80s to do English studies mm-hmm. and I went to the University of Strathclyde and one of the attractions of Strathclyde, because I could have come here, was that I'd got a, an A-band one in my higher economics and I potentially fancied being an economist. Right, okay. And at Strathclyde, they allowed you to do five subjects. Mm-hmm. So that I went in doing English, economics and three other things and by the end of first year decided... I don't like economics at university. I'll continue with English and history. Now, what did your your mum and dad think? I mean, it wasn't necessarily completely common for working class kids to go to university at that time, was it? Or was it? I, can't I don't even... think it was, except, you know, my year at school, your year at school too, Jim, but my, my year that included your brother, me, and seven or eight or nine others of, of us in our year all went to university. So was that because that... I mean, I'm only speculating here because mm. I can't remember even the context of it. Was that because of that particular school and that particular culture that we were in? Yeah. We're starting to value that. Where other people were not necessarily valuing that, or or was that just the whole country was changing and they needed in macroeconomically yeah. you needed yeah. people to be getting educated at a higher level? I think some of all of that, but my parents, like your parents, were supportive of their kids by and large. Yeah. Yeah. They mostly understood our aspirations, but not always. Mm. And I remember when I trained as a teacher after my undergraduate years, and I ended up in John Paul Academy in Somerston, and my first day in there with a bunch of student teachers, the tannoy goes, could Mr. Cross see the headmaster? And the other students are going, oh, what's, what's he done? <laughs> and I go down, and the lady brings in the cake trolley, and sitting in front of me is the headmaster, my old English teacher, Eamon Rafferty from St Andrews, who'd seen me in the list. And we chat away and he said to me, you know, Jerry, he said, see your year. He said, you won't realise that it was exceptional. And he said, I think it was just one of these accidents. He said, there were about 10 or 12 of you guys went to university. But nonetheless, also having working class parents that were a bit aspirational and supportive, and also being at a certain moment in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s, social mobility was still kind of possible for the working classes in a way that I think has been shut down since. Simple example, uh, didn't have to pay university fees. Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, social mobility is, well, if you look at the research, uh, Mm. and I I know that I can spout them too, but I'm certainly certainly Mm. aware of them. Uh, Social mobility is going down rather than going up. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And that, well, let's not get into too much about the politics of it because I might start going red-faced but uh, <laughs> but it's to do with the government priorities uh, UK government priorities yeah. and the whole sort of right-wing lush What's depressing uh, is that you know we, yeah. we've got you know you get the 13 years of Thatcher yeah. the 10 years of Blair or whatever and the poverty gap has widened yeah. in that quarter of a century and continued widening Yeah I mean it's depressing when you think about it because we probably grew up in a time where we thought there was going to be continual progress Yeah continual liberalisation of society and that has not turned out to be the case Uh, Absolutely Jim and although I don't sentimentalise Clyde Bank and Red Clydeside 
the other thing that people at you and I should remember when we're coming into our late teens, we're the last generation where above us are fathers and sometimes mothers in employment. There isn't a, there's a there's a working class. Shortly after that, there begins to be a huge underclass right. because of unemployment. Right, uh, there's you know I'm you know I know that people in the forties, fifties, sixties drank. There was wife beating. Not at all rosy glasses. Uh, rose-tinted glasses, but, you know, the drug scene in Clyde Bank in the 70s and 80s, I don't think it really existed in the 60s, there is there is a different kind of social deprivation, there's a different set of social and health problems, mm-hmm. whereas when we were uh, growing up, people, our parents, who were fairly typical of a wide range of Catholic and non-Catholic Clyde Bank, had this idea that they were trying to get up in life and they wanted their kids to get up in life and there was a narrative of progress. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I mean, I hadn't really thought about it like that, but that's absolutely right. The whole, the 1980s, 1979, 81, that whole mm. area where there was the start of that kind of unemployment and a whole, you say, a whole class of people that didn't work. Yeah. And uh, the poverty that came with that uh, and probably the attitudes uh, and the return of a kind of class system mm-hmm, in some mm-hmm. sense, which I hadn't really thought about like that. But which yeah. pretends to be classless. I mean, yeah. I try not to hate anyone, but if I hate anyone, it's probably Maggie Thatcher. Yeah. And one of the reasons I hated her and still hate her is because she looked at communities throughout the UK and said, not profitable, therefore close the industry down. Yeah. Whereas in fact, the social and ultimately economic benefits of allowing mines or shipyards or whatever to continue, even if they weren't profitable, meant that the community functioned better. Yeah. Well, see, that's the thing about that. I mean, it was a very, very short-sighted and very kind of uh, ideological-driven mm-hmm. way of thinking. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and people like yourself and myself, I mean, if you did something like sociology, mm. whether you did it at mm-hmm. school or whether you did it at university or something, Everybody knows that there's more than just yeah. shutting down the factory. Yeah. Shut down the factory and all the all the shops are in the bitter are yeah. because as well. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. The whole ecosystem falls apart. And even you though know, Thatcher and her apologists sort of deny that she said there's no such thing as society, she did more or less say that and she did operate on that principle that we're all individuals and the way and, and it's a, it, it remains Tory ideology to this day, I believe in all kinds of ways that you should have no comfort zone and the way to progress the whole of the economic system yeah. is to have us all fighting one another. Well, I fundamentally disagree. Well, the thing about that, I mean, I occasionally talk to people about this, but they don't know what I'm talking about, obviously, because <laughs> I did ideology mm-hmm. at university uh, as part of my politics thing. So I, I tend to blame all of this on just a particular way of thinking about the world mm-hmm. and a particular way about thinking about human beings mm-hmm. and their drives mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. How, what drives human beings and what they are, essentially. Yeah. Uh, it's the difference between a Tory mm. conservative way of looking at the world and a more kind of socialist, if you like to call yeah. it that, left wing. It's to do with uh, views of the human being, mm-hmm. uh, and which is exactly what you said. I can't necessarily mm-hmm. verbalise mm-hmm. it right now, but uh, to give mm-hmm. you, a, it's to try to give you a sense of why somebody would make a decision like that. Yeah. You make a decision like that because they think, well, people are just yeah. selfish. And out for themselves, and you know, absolutely their drives are this, and that. Yes. therefore, you've got to organize society in such a way, yeah, to accommodate and 
you know, keep order. Yeah. So, you know, that's a Tory way of thinking about it. Whereas if you think, well, actually, people are essentially generous, community-driven, yeah. Yeah. and uh, whatever, which is the opposite side yeah. of the coin, then you organise society in a different way. I think you're right, you know? Jim. I mean, the word you just used, I believe that we're fundamentally communitarian. Yeah, so... So you've still got that, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what we've got in a Tory government right now. Yeah. Uh, and so I will say that to somebody, other than somebody like yourself, who's maybe mm-hmm. a teeny uh, <laughs> iota what I'm talking about, and they mm-hmm. just kind of look at me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you talking about, Jim? Mm-hmm. That's a load of pish, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and it isn't, and again, thinking back to, again, without being uh, over-nostalgic, when you and I were growing up in Clydebank, I think there was more of a sense of community... There were some shitty things going on too, but people did look at look, uh, look out for one another, mm-hmm. and some of that was to do with church communities and other communities uh, that believed that humans were more than just uh, a bundle of economic functions. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, anyway, so let's <laughs> let's move on. Otherwise, we'll tell ourselves mm-hmm. notes. Uh, so you so you you went to university and you did mm-hmm. the. You, Dispense with economics, mm-hmm. and you were concentrating on the, the English. Yes, yeah, I ended up doing English and history, but in the end, uh, was particularly doing English. I became obsessed. I thought I was a sort of average student and was reading the same amount, but sort of looking back on it now, you know, I was doing a Shakespeare course in my final year. I'm sure that not everyone was reading the entire oeuvre. I was, mm-hmm. and it wasn't in a pretentious way. It was like, oh, I better be prepared for this course, and also, if I'm honest. I was quite sucked into it. And that period also coincides a period when I'd stopped playing in bands. And I was more solitary in a sense. And I was quite enjoying it. But what I was doing around playing guitars around people's houses to three in the morning, I was reading. And I wasn't consciously thinking, I need to do this degree as part of a career. It was just at that point, that's what was turning me on. But the other thing to say about that point is that I was seriously considering becoming a Jesuit. And that was part of the the introversion that was going on. And so I was reading a lot of theology. I was reading a lot of spirituality. And indeed, I was going on retreats. I was corresponding with the Society of Jesus Novitiate House in Liverpool. And there was a period between about 85 and 89 when I was still seriously thinking that yeah. might happen. What was it, do you think, that was uh, making you think like that? I mean, was it, you know, I kind of interesting when people mm. get this fine Jesus or with fine mm. religion in a, in a deeper way, mm-hmm. there's usually some reason in their life, mm-hmm. <laughs> on whatever that is. Yeah. It might be somebody died or it might be, mm-hmm. you know, that there was a breakup in the family or, or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was there something that, that, or was it just you became yeah. interested in it? Or? I think my reading was becoming deeper and deeper and I was particularly drawn to the Victorian people uh, like John Henry Newman, Gerard Manley Hopkins. Uh, the real problem was I never gave up fancying girls all during that time. Right, okay. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm quite serious, possibly a bit of an evocation and if that's the case, I'll need to do something about that. But, right. you know, we'll see how it goes. But... Um, it is the typical Catholic, bright Catholic boy thinking this might be what God has intended for me. Right, okay. And I was in that mindset, rightly or wrongly, that this might not be my choice. Right, right. Um, Which is a very Catholic thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a very kind of... Uh, well, they tell you the stories when you're yeah. primary school, yeah. so they stick with you. Yeah. 
vocations. Yes, yeah. yes, and that that Catholic mindset, people will call it doctrinaire or indoctrination, but well, maybe because of that or alongside that, it is very powerful. Yeah, and it's a very rich story in some senses that you're being told, although not just bigots, other people tell very vulgar versions of what's going on there. But I mean, you know, at the time, I remember quite consciously being interested in Christology, in the theology that Christ brings to the third world. Um, I made a short film by the time I got to teacher training college about liberation theology. I was very interested in the way in which the Jesuits especially were combining Marxist ideas, which I was increasingly drawn to, mm-hmm. with spirituality. And I thought, this is great, we can have it both. We can be a Marxist and we can go to Mass. And that seemed to me to bring everything together very, very nicely. Yeah. So, and, and also, you know, the thing I think I've learned, Jim, is that most people spend most of their lives pretty bored. <laughs> and it's good to have strong interests, whether it's Marxism, music, or mass. Right. And all those things are pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, the other thing, uh, if you don't mind me saying from the mm-hmm. outside, mm-hmm. you're the sort of person who does things and makes things. Because right? mm-hmm. I remember, you know, mm. it's been a long time, but we, when we were young, we were into music. And mm-hmm. we played music, mm-hmm. and we wrote songs, and we were kind of fans of music. Mm-hmm. But... A lot of people are, are like that, but not everybody puts it a bloody fancy. Yeah. You know, not, not everybody becomes a kind of journalist yeah. and starts producing things mm-hmm. and making things, which is definitely one of the things that you were involved in. Yes, there uh, was there was a period from 83 to 86 when I was uh, editing a fanzine called The Light and Disorder. Yeah. And I'd taken that name from one of my favourite 17th century poems by Robert Herrick. And, of course, my closest collaborator on that project was your brother, John. Yeah. And John and I and some others did that fanzine even, you know, during our university days so that um, I was ending up, I was going to see Wet, Wet, Wet playing Shots Prison or I get drunk with Jack Bruce of the Cream on right. one night right, right. or I would be interviewing Pete Shelley of the Buzzcocks. Right. And that was great fun because we were, we were just into the music and, of course, it was that kind of... Um, slightly after the punk period, but that punk aesthetic of uh, it was the independent ethos exactly. that people like you, as do much as I were into, yeah, yeah do it yourself. And it was very liberating. Yeah. And as you remember too, Jim. There was a time when, you know, early eighties Scotland suddenly thought we're as hip and as musical as anywhere else. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so there's a whole there, people are doing everything. You get the the Glasgow Art School bands from East Kilbride fanzines etc etc yeah. it, it felt it felt like a very it felt to me like the dawning of a kind of moder- modernity I remember I still look back in the 80s and think right, of course it's to do with coming of age in a sense yeah, we can do whatever we want yeah. and we can have a great time doing yeah, it yeah. I mean it was orange juice and you know the Aztec like, camera Aztec the camera, bluebells yeah, Joseph K all those bands uh, which were your era yeah you know actually strangely enough I'm slightly older than you uh, and they weren't really my era because I was original punk. I was yeah. the, the, the movement slightly. I was more that. of a mod, but you also had a kind of uh, quite a sweet tooth for mainstream rock. Yeah, a yeah, lot of that stuff, yeah. which I also quite like yeah. more and more as I get older. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So are you going to see the Rolling Stones when they no, come? Well, I've been to see the Rolling Stones. Before. <laughs> I mean, I haven't been to see the Rolling Stones anyway. Uh, 
retired. Yeah. But, you know, should I say that? Yeah. yeah. I, saw, I remember I, I went to see the Kinks in yeah. the Barrows gym in the late yeah. 90s and been really disappointed yeah. because they were they believed their own American stadium rock identity. Yeah. And it was just rubbish. I mean, I, I'm still a music fan and I still mm. love new music. You know, mm. I've, I seek out new music. Uh, and I get bored with old stuff and I don't listen to old stuff mm-hmm. very much. But, uh, I mean, I, reckon, I recognise, you know, time... Stuff mm. at this time was good then, and of mm. course it's still good now. But your interest moves on, mm. so, so that doesn't mean it's no good. It's just yeah. you no longer like to listen to it because there's something new. Yeah. You know, so I'll, I'll still listen to a lot of new music and uh, still play music, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, what was what was what we were talking about there? So, well, I, the whole mm-hmm. punk thing. Yeah. I mean, like I, I've said this folk before. I was in a punk band, mm-hmm. in probably 1977, mm-hmm. and I was that classic person that played at the disco at school <laughs> uh, you know so every story of any rock mm-hmm. band they played at the disco at school mm-hmm. uh, you know so mm-hmm. I was in that band so I came slightly before you uh, in that movement but also imbued with the punk ethos mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. nobody else is going to do it for you yeah. you do it yourself yeah. and I think that's kind of relevant to somebody like yourself because mm-hmm. although you came the slightly <clears throat> later version mm-hmm. of that which was the the orange juice and the mm-hmm. kind of uh, mm-hmm. I can't think what they called that particular type of music but uh, slightly more fey uh-huh. that'd be fair that'd be fair floppy fringes more jangly guitars all of that yeah, yeah. that's right but it was new and fresh at the time yeah. and, I, and I loved Orange Juice one of my favourite bands ever still do yeah so but I think that kind of stuff actually feeds into what you're doing now mm. because you need to be somebody who does things and makes things in order to be the sort of person that can write a book mm-hmm. the sort mm-hmm. of person that can do the sort of research that puts things together mm. and has the confidence Mm. to think that you can do yeah. it, you know, because I, <laughs> yeah. I think it takes that. You know. I think you're right, Jim. I mean, the one thing I would claim was there's a continuity between me running a fanzine, playing a guitar, and what I do now is a sense of absolute enjoyment and in getting into the thing yeah. and wanting to have some kind of, sounds slightly pretentious, but some kind of output, which is creative yeah, in a right. sense. That's right. So, I mean, the... the that early uh, interest in music and that mm. early interest in making a fanzine and mm-hmm. talking to people and compiling mm-hmm. something, mm-hmm. that's research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were researching. Yeah. You were writing that up and then you were producing a publication. Mm-hmm. What do you do now? <laughs> you <Yes>. research. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Just a publication. <laughs> and also I work on a writer, Robert Burns, who might or might be, not be Scotland's greatest poet, but who's certainly a greatest songwriter, and I'm very yeah, attracted yeah, to his songs. Right. So there's all, I mean, again, Burns is a great exemplar, Jim, because he was, to some extent, although it can be overemphasised, self-made, and he was a man who loved music and poetry and wanted to try a lot of things, which is not to suggest that I'm saying I modelled myself in him or that I'm in that class and anything, but it's the kind of, it's the kind of mindset that you're talking about yeah. where... There's always that slight thing too, you know, although I'm saying that people like your parents, my parents are very supportive, there's a wee bit of, they'd be looking at me or you and saying, you're not quite grown up yet. Why yeah. are you not doing something a bit more well, down to earth? that's a generational thing as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, I mean, I'm 56, you're 54. 40 years ago, somebody mm. who was our ages, mm. we would not look like this. No, you would have the overcoat <laughs> and the cap and the pipe. <laughs> And, and you, you did it. I mean, that that's what, again, Jim, we're talking about cultural shifts. The 60s, more people go to university, mm-hmm. more people make music. Mm-hmm. The pop movement, the popular movement in every sphere 
takes off in society and culture in the UK and elsewhere. Yeah. And people like you and me uh, derive the benefits, get the legacy of that to some yeah. extent. Well, I'm different from you in as much as I'm not as disciplined in any way <laughs> as you are. I don't know. <laughs> I am the person who didn't do a massive amount of work at university. You mm. might have been a swat. I was the opposite. Uh, <laughs> I was playing pool and playing my guitar and stuff like that. Uh, and you know that's why I'm on this side of the table interviewing <laughs> you. Uh, anyway, so back to the mm. so you've been at university. You're at university. Mm. How do you? What happens? You, you're doing this course. Yeah. What happens after that? What happens? Uh, so you go? I came out as an undergraduate. I kind of wanted some time out. I'm thinking seriously about the Jesuit priesthood. I'm thinking seriously about where might the most beautiful girl that I want to meet be. Might she be just around the corner? Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, I'll take a bit of time out. I'd done well at university. And after a year, I decided I'm going to do, go and do teacher training for a year because at least then if I faff around, because I was still also thinking maybe I want to form another band and give that a go, but I've now done my degree. Let's play it safe again, mm. retrospectively. Let's let's get be teacher trained. I can always fall back on that. And before the teacher training, I had begun doing some teaching at Clydebank College, oh. higher English and other stuff, okay. including the other family connection for you, working with your Uncle Ben, for oh, enough. Of course I am. And I was 23, <laughs> and you were supposed to be 25 right. to work in an FE college, and I quite enjoyed that period, and I thought, well, I can at least do another year uh, doing teacher training. And I did a year of teacher training, did well at that. I was offered a job in Japan. Stupid me didn't go because I'd formed another band by then, but it didn't come to anything. And so I stayed here. I was offered jobs in teaching weren't plentiful. I was offered a job in Castle Bay High School in Barra, and I was offered another job. And as these offers were coming through and as the beginning of term was getting closer, I was thinking, I've got a first-class honours degree. I know I can still get three-year funding for a PhD. I quite fancy just going off and doing three years research, right, right, right. which is what I then did. Okay, okay. Which was not necessarily the safe option there. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Yeah, that was... <laughs> I was more creative. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you do wonder, Jim, the path not taken. Yeah. You know, I would have done that. Probably you get habituated, you get used to the money, yeah. and I might have spent 30, maybe happy years teaching, yeah. but, you know, I might have stayed in that place. One thing I'm reasonably grateful about in my life is that I've shifted around. After postgraduate studies, doing an MPhil and a PhD, I was two years as a research fellow at Aberdeen, although not often in Aberdeen, I was working in Edinburgh. Right. Then I was five years at Strathclyde, and I've now been here 18 years, and in the course of all that time, I've had lots of international travel. Right. So I'm very lucky to have had a very varied life through all of that. Yeah, that sounds like, What did you do your PhD on? My PhD was called The Invention of Scottish Literature During the Long 18th Century. And it goes all the way from the writer Alan Ramsey, who begins more or less writing in 1712, mm. down to the work of Walter Scott, John Galt and James Hogg in the 1830s. So Alan Ramsey, is that the father? That's the father of the painter, yeah. So, you know, that was, that was a period, Jim, when people at Benedict Anderson and others were talking about imagining a nation. Everything was imagined, everything was created, everything was constructed. We sort of always knew that, but there was a fashion for writing PhDs that showed the constructedness. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I was doing in my PhD, which I think and I hope I achieved, 
I was showing the way in which the concept of Scottish literature was created due to certain national and international pressures. And the most controversial thing I did in that probably was an opening chapter that deconstructed the Scottish critical tradition that showed the nationalist way of looking at Scottish culture didn't add up, or at least not in the way that they thought it did. Mm. In other words, what that boils down to is a long-standing idea that healthy Scotland equals healthy culture. What they meant by that was that Scotland, healthy Scotland, needed to be an independent, self-standing state, and the result of that would be healthy culture. Because we didn't have an independent country, everything, whether it was David Hume or Robert Burns or Walter Scott, everything that the world previously thought was great was not really great. It was in some way diseased or could have been bigger had we had a fully functioning independent state. So to begin with, although I wasn't unsympathetic necessarily to nationalist politics, my cultural reading of Scottish literature horrified a lot of people and flew in the face of a lot of truisms and a lot of cheerleading for Scottish literature to the extent that in all kinds of ways, including politically today, I arrive at a place where I make people slightly uncomfortable for a number of reasons, but especially because I salute neither the nationalist nor the unionist versions of culture. I think it's my job, paid for out of the public purse as a university academic, to be a bit sceptical all round. I think that's really interesting you should say that, because I've been reading, uh, you know, Ferguson, the painter? Yes. he was a nas- you know, he was a mm. nationalist, and he's got a book which I can't remember exactly the name mm. of it. It's something like uh, "What Is Painting" or something like that. What is that? Yeah, something like that. But he's very much a Scottish artist, mm-hmm. with the word Scottish mm. in capital letters, uh, and he's very much somebody who wants to see an ind- well. This is end of the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. Wants to see an independent mm-hmm. Scotland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so his book. Is exactly what you say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Says the same thing. Yeah. That you can't have this fully realised Scottish yeah, yeah. art unless you've got a independence. And they all believe this. It's a myth of mm. organic culture that everything fits together. Mm. And the narrative was a bit bonkers, Jim, because they mm. say things like, oh, when the king went away, that was, you know, in 1603, we lost our king, then we lost our parliament, then we lost blah, blah, blah. And you think, what? We need a, you know, we need a king and a queen to be a fully functioning country we even need a part in the parliament that we had if you look at it historically wasn't all that brilliantly yeah. functioning it wasn't necessarily a democratic chamber but i make these sort of historical points mm-hmm. and i'm not looking to be anti-nationalist or anything like that but i believe and this comes back to some of my left-wing leanings that culture comes from the people and not from the state and the state also is quite a reductive idea for a lot of Scottish nationalist thinkers historically, if only we can run independent Scotland, everything will be great. Well, guess what? No, it won't. Well, I mean, I'm an, I'm an independent supporter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure that doesn't surprise you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not my reading of uh, why I want independence. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's not to do with... Because one of the things that... One of the core things in my thinking about it is about mm-hmm. confidence. Mm-hmm. It's not about necessarily the cultural things mm-hmm. about we're not a culture unless this happens. Yeah. It's more to do with uh, being grown up mm-hmm. uh, as a as a people and as an individuals within the country and the mm-hmm. mindset. Yeah. I think it's disabling to ha- to be ruled by a parliament mm-hmm. four hundred miles away because it demeans people when mm-hmm. when they start. I mean, it doesn't mean people in uh, 
if you're not aware of the inequality, mm. because if you're blind to it, it doesn't have the same effect. Yeah. It just have an, it has an economic effect on you uh, and has a dispiriting in as much as if you're in poverty and you're not aware of why you're in poverty mm. mm-hmm. and you're suffering the consequences of policies, yeah. then it affects you. But you don't understand it. Mm-hmm. You don't understand that, that that has affected who you are yeah. and, and your yeah. situation. But I think if you're educated in any way mm. about how that, that is the case, then I think, personally, mm. the independence is important for that psychology and for being yeah. a grown-up. There uh, are good and respectable and grown-up reasons for being yeah. a nationalist, but the, the the problem comes when the narrative, as I say, Jim, becomes organic. You know, everything fits together. We've got our own country, therefore culture might... Well, culture might or might not be better and independence gone. And I don't care about that. And it's, as you say, people that want an independence Scotland, fine... Have that for whatever reasons you want, but don't claim that it, you know, it makes everything automatically better. No, it um, doesn't make everything automatically better, but the inequality that Scotland suffers in this system, mm-hmm. uh, there's a, there needs to be a fair, a fair system there, and that's one of the things. I mean, I'm sure you can relate to that with, mm-hmm. with your left-wing socialist background. <laughs> But at the same time, I am aware of the Labour Party's stance, mm-hmm. which is not that, which is more yeah. of, oh, we'll stick together, you know, so we're all the same. Yeah, which uh, sometimes which, is know, a little bit... the fact that there are things called countries, yeah. you know. Yeah, but, and also, though, I, I might also just say it's interesting, I mean this genuinely, objectively, to watch the SNP now becoming more conservative as the party machine clings to power and be less zealous about mm-hmm. what was supposedly their core ideals. I think to some extent, maybe not not, not entirely. But I mean, I've always, I suppose, been a supporter of some kind of version of devolution. Mm. I could never quite salute nationalism entirely either because it, for me, the only issue in town was class. Um, and Yeah, but that again is a very much a kind of, I'm got a Labour Party socialist background mm-hmm. perspective mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know that mm. you're with the whole thing about uh, you, if you if you're setting the agenda mm-hmm. you're setting the boundaries of what you can think about uh-huh. if you know what I mean mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. once you've got something that's the touchstone of all mm-hmm. your thinking you can't actually think out with it because yeah. if it's not consistent with that it can be considered. Can you not say that about nationalism too, though? Yeah, but yeah, I'm sure you can. I'm sure mm, you can. I mean, yeah. I don't consider myself a nationalist. Mm. I mean, uh, this is it's uh, it's not a word that I even like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always say I'm into interested in independent mm-hmm. Scotland. Mm-hmm. I'm not a nationalist. Yeah, uh, which is such a yeah, yeah. word with all sorts of connotations. Yeah. An independent might be a functional thing yeah. in, in all kinds of ways, rather yeah. than nationalist does smack more of an ideology or a set of beliefs. Yeah, that's right. Um, and nationalism uh, out with Scottish nationalism is a very right wing idea, mm-hmm. idea, and it's a very mm-hmm. uh, exclusive, as an excluding people yeah. idea. Nationalism, yeah. you know, we don't want the foreigners in here. Yeah, nationalism, which is completely opposite of what I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, yeah, in. sure, <laughs> yeah. clearly. And and of course, but, the uh, SNP has got a long history yeah. of of quite a right wing phalanx. Yeah, so the SNP has changed. I mean, yeah. that's one of the things. I mean that. I don't know enough about the SNP and uh, mm. when in the first independent referen- uh, referendum mm. uh, I was thinking, well, you know, the, the SNP are an organisation that has changed considerably mm-hmm. over the years mm-hmm. uh, 
as, it was almost like a, a Tory party mm -hmm. at some point, and then as the people change mm -hmm. and the ideology changes, and now we've got Nicola Sturgeon, who's much more kind of left leaning mm -hmm. uh, yeah. her background is now and shape. smart enough to shift yeah. the policy agenda that's, that's, absolutely that's right so so it's a kind of late change mm -hmm. in some sense and i support that i mean mm -hmm. i i like nicholas Sturgeon a lot mm -hmm. i mean i think she's a smart person she's a good politician and no she's a question. good politician uh, and a good strategist mm -hmm. compared oh i mean alex Salmond was kind of blind in some sense to <laughs> all sorts <laughs> of things <laughs> so uh, i get, uh, i give you an example of how in recent years, and I, I mean, I've got you know, I've I've had, I've had cordial chats with Alex Salmond, but the time I slightly freaked him out. I, I don't think that's to exaggerate it. And I was speaking at the Scottish Parliament mm -hmm. at the time when we were celebrating Thomas Muir's two hundred fiftieth anniversary of his birth, mm -hmm. and I didn't know that Salmond, who I've got a lot of admiration for, was it's in the audience. Man, you know, yes, yeah, it's man. and one of the well, two things I was saying, which I think I do believe, even beyond this situation. I was saying a lot of people are now claiming Thomas Muir, political parties, universities, including my own, and I was saying to the audience, sort of humorously, but seriously as well, don't let anyone take sole ownership. I think that is culturally dangerous. But the other thing I was pointing out about Muir, which is where I see my job coming in to be historically and culturally accurate, Thomas Muir, who I admire in all kinds of ways, who is indeed important in Scotland's modern political history, is also deeply motivated by his Calvinism. In other words, he's a religious figure. And the versions that we sometimes get of Thomas Muir are completely secular. And I've got a big problem with secular culture, not as a religious person per se, but it's a very crude, shallow thing that says, oh, all that previous stuff, you can forget about it, or it rereads Thomas Muir as a completely secular figure. Mm -hmm. Now, Muir has got his secular uses, but I want to respect history enough to say... There's a number of sides to this, and also there are truths that are sometimes uncomfortable. And that's why time and again, Burns studies, Muir studies, Scottish literary studies, I find myself in trouble. I think I'm just speaking common sense and the historical truth, and people think he's off message. He's supposed to be representing Scottish literature or Scottishness. Yeah. And I'm a patriotic Scot in all kinds of ways, but I don't feel that I've got a party line. And don't object to yeah. politicians of whatever stamp having a party line, but I do object to academics of an yeah, apartment. but that's because you're trying to be a real academic. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with what Alex Salmon was doing. Alec was slightly freaked out about me saying, oh, a Calvinist and some other things. Um, and the other thing historically is they read Muir as a proto-nationalist. And I think that's just historically wrong. I don't have an axe to grind. And I wouldn't have a problem if he was. But I think the evidence doesn't show that at all. Right. So these rewritings of history, which too many of my colleagues or supposedly professionals go along with and end up cheerleading, I want to dissent from that. And I'm a bit stubborn and cursed, but it's yeah. about getting towards some kind of objective truth, even though I know that there's no such thing ultimately. No, we're all biased. Mm. Uh, and... and the most biased folk are the folk that don't know they're biased. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the most yeah. prejudiced people are the people who don't think they're prejudiced. Yeah, the people who are not you and me. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm prejudiced. <laughs> uh, 
But you know, there are folk yeah. that say, "Oh no, I don't have a prejudice bone in my body." Yeah, so, <laughs> that's right. That's right. You just have the default. Yes. You know, I mean, I catch myself culture. being sexist or racist, not not in a huge way or not in an outrageous way, but you know, thoughts come and you know you're educated enough to think, "Oh, hang on a minute," you know, and you try and resist that. But you're right; they're the people who pretend that they are whiter than white. Yeah. That's the thing that bothers me about political correctness. It's not about being politically correct most of that stuff I sort of agree with it's the people who pretend oh, I could never have thought about that I mean you know you talk yeah. about growing up in Clyde Bank the jokes that you and I and others like us laughed at yeah, yeah. in all kinds of ways well, now we'd find unpalatable yeah absolutely I mean this is the thing you make, you're making me think about things like racism and all this kind of mm. stuff that uh, you know you'll, you'll see somebody on the television who is maybe in some in the BNP or whatever mm-hmm. and they're clearly a racist mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, no question and uh, you know, I always think, well, what makes them like that is their background and their mm-hmm. education mm-hmm. or their lack of education, mm-hmm. and that can be us. Mm-hmm. It probably was us when we were sixteen yeah. or seventeen, mm-hmm. you know, because we just weren't educated. No. So we need to be at least slightly sympathetic. Yeah. Uh, on folk with extreme views. Yes, <laughs> they're still human beings, it's, and it's also not their fault yeah. in some sense. And it's a bit like poverty and growing up and not getting an education. Mm-hmm. Uh, whose fault's that? Mm. Is that the person's fault? Mm. You know, if you grow up, you know, you we, we come from Clyde Bank and there are big chunks of white crook, mm. which were very, very poor. Yeah. Uh, and we're in that cycle of, you know, your mum and dad were poor, you're born into poverty, you don't have the opportunities. You're yeah. in that kind of situation where you're not going to get opportunities. Mm-hmm. Can you blame that individual? Yeah. If they've got attitudes which are formed in that context? Yeah. But you can't really. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> but I remember too, growing up in Clydebank, Jim, a number of people, I used to actually consciously watch them, and they didn't fit with their background, and I was always interested in that. Mm. You know, I can think of one individual that I wouldn't name who came from a family where the brothers were all violent and all hard men mm-hmm. and all of that kind of thing, and... Uh, this guy consciously was a bit of a pacifist and a thinker right. and he read and he was still sort of respected because he was part of family X. But I remember to this day being quite fascinated to think he made the conscious choice and the intelligence to say, you know that crap in my background? I'm not having that. Yeah. And But like you say, uh, where do we, how do we evaluate people? Where do we give them enough slack and say, well, they can't help that at what point do we say, well, come on, you're a grown-up, think for yourself? And it's never easy to know. Yeah, but I think... I mean, I don't, I don't know what the answer is, mm. but to some extent is, an, is to have a society that is fairer and gives that person the opportunities mm-hmm. in the education that yeah, they should have. Absolutely. Uh, because I mean, the reason that you might have these uh, you know, attitudes which mm-hmm. are not developed because you, know, you don't have the experience... Mm-hmm. Uh, to have a different attitude mm. is because they're not getting the education and the yeah. opportunities and yeah. they're living in a particular uh, context mm-hmm. and culture mm-hmm. where that's the norm. Yeah. To be racist is the, yeah. is the norm. To be whatever is yeah. the norm because you're living in that. Otherwise, if they weren't living that, yeah, they'd yeah. have those attitudes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, you know, you've got to blame society uh, and uh-huh. you've got to look at equality and poverty mm-hmm. and, and, and blame the state and blame the politicians. You're absolutely right, you Jim. Know, there are uh, structural things. Structural, that's the word, isn't it? There are also some personal things. And even now I think about it because I go through cycles 
of my habitual love of Celtic Football Club, which I really do love on occasion. There are times when I want to distance myself from the tribe. And there's part of me that understands those football fans that hate both Celtic and Rangers. And mm. I can see why they do that. Yeah, yeah. Because they're saying, I want to opt out of sectarianism and all kinds of things. Yeah. And sometimes in the tribe, it's too easy to feel comfortable. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit the easiest thing to talk about earlier. Your, your default thoughts, mm-hmm. your defo- your, the default background makes you think in a certain way. Now, I mean, I'm brought up as a Catholic like yourself. So, you know, when t- people are talking about the debate about mm. let's get rid of these faith schools, mm-hmm. that's a debate I see on Facebook all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I tend reflexes to argue against that particular mm-hmm. approach mm-hmm. because, you know, it seems to me to be oppressive mm-hmm. uh, of people's faith yeah. and culture. Uh, and they don't mean faith schools, they mean Catholic schools. Well, actually. exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so when I point out to them that, you know, the reason that you've got that particular attitude is because of your background. Mm-hmm. You know, you grew up is what we would call a Protestant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you grew up in a school where they taught you things about Catholics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up as a Catholic. Mm-hmm. Now, is, it, is, it, is it not interesting that I've got the opposite view to you? Mm-hmm. And, and why is that? Where does that come where from? Where does that come from? <laughs> uh, and, but folks somehow still seem to think, oh no, it was just because I was logical and you yeah. weren't. <laughs> That's right. I have thought this up myself. Yeah, yeah. But wait a minute. You know, yeah. So all these Protestant folk think this and all these Catholic mm-hmm. folk think this. And they're all thinking for yeah. themselves. Yeah. Wait a minute, there must be some connection yes. here, mate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? And you've got to be smart enough to realise that and to both stick with some of what you were brought up with and also dissent from yeah, some so, of it. Yeah, so one of the reasons I mentioned that is not because I'm, I'm coming down hard on mm-hmm. the person that's saying get rid of the, yeah. the faith schools. Mm-hmm. I'm also illustrating my own prejudice yeah. and my yeah. own background, which and forms, your own for, forms my attitudes. Yeah. Uh, and my inability sometimes to see yeah. the whole picture because you can't get rid of mm-hmm. your own background yeah. and your own, your own nurture and, <laughs> and all the rest of it. Exactly. And, so. and most of that stuff, whether you're a Catholic, a Protestant or an atheist, I would venture, most of that, unless we end up insane maniacs, most of that formation is good. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's where I, you know, it sounds a wee bit conservative, but I fear slightly in the early 21st century for for people that no longer believe in churches or even community centres or bowling clubs. There's, there's sort of... Everything is less cohesive. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not some deep point about uh, the doctrine or whatever you should believe in other than communitarianism. You know, people coming together... I mean, th- you know, the truth they don't tell us is that Protestants and Catholics and Jews and Muslims and many other people all do good things. What's the common denominator? There's a communitarian glue yeah, yeah. that at, at its best produces the universal human thing of looking out for one another and having a sense of responsibility for one another. Yeah, yeah. The common good, yeah. you might call it, and I yeah. deeply believe in that. And I suppose one of the things, well, to be a wee bit personal now as well, one of my recent... Uh, roles is to become a member, a board member of Scottish Pen, which I've been glad to do. Right. I've helped organise a couple of symposium or symposia here, and the original mission of Scottish Pen is to protect writers who are persecuted here or right. abroad. Okay. I'm all in favour of that. I think now, rightly or wrongly, they've got mission creep, and we're getting into identity politics. And we're getting into issues about sexuality 
and defending gay rights, bloody blah, blah. And by and large, I would want to be a defender of gay rights, but it slightly perturbs me now that there's a set of identity politics that are becoming more and more fragmented and less and less generalist. And I see that also in religions, including Catholicism, where there's a turn, especially among some young Catholics, to be purist and to say, let's, you know, the true believers is 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 our bunch who worship yeah. in a certain way and you know Yeah, but don't you think that's because we're living in a particular piece of history where people are trying to protect themselves because, Absolutely. because everybody's getting attacked from all sides. It's a kind yeah. of insecurity, uh, Jim, insecurity. you're right. Uh, and and that insecurity then becomes strident. Yeah. And I think there's a danger for other minority groups, whether it's gay rights, whether it's uh, groups that promote uh, the rights of certain races. And again, I believe in all that, of course I do. But the danger is you end up creating the other, even if you're a minority. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's always dangerous to create others because where I remain, I suppose, a liberal humanist is I want to believe that the entire human race, however much it's been supposedly radicalised or not in different places, we've all got a certain common human nature and a, there is a common family there that we can reach out and identify well that's why i'm a great believer in the united nations if it will work properly in the world health organization etc mm-hmm. etc et i think it's an absolute disgrace in this day and age that there's anyone in this globe starving mm-hmm. i just think it's ludicrous mm-hmm. um and of course we're bombarded all the time by charities that never go away and i support some of them and it's just endlessly give us money Clearly, never to solve the problem, and that's yeah. worrying. Yeah, yeah, goodness me, bloody over. <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't have gone there at no, twenty to six on a, a Thursday evening. That's Jim. true. That's true. Let's go back a wee bit. Yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while since we spoke about this. But mm-hmm. after you left, mm-hmm. after you got these jobs, yes. <laughs> how did you end up? I know this was a. Mm. You went to Strathclyde. You went mm. to Aberdeen. You ended up eighteen years ago. Mm-hmm. How did you end up in here 18 years ago? Um, Well, I'd done a PhD here and the head of department was my supervisor and I knew people here. And at Strathclyde, I had a job in an English department that I enjoyed being in. And I was doing well, I was publishing well. I'd been given sort of pay rises. Um, it was made plain to me that people were watching me and thought I was a good thing and my career was to be promoted. All of that was tremendously reassuring. What were you writing? What was your interest at the time? Well, I was uh, publishing increasingly on uh, the 20th century novel, including Muriel Spark, but also my core interest of 18th century stuff. And then the strange thing happened that I found myself in conflict with a colleague who was writing about Burns, Right. who was claiming that working with another individual, they had a whole set of poems, lost poems by Robert Burns, which slowly but surely between 1997 and 2006, I essentially demonstrated that all these were not by Burns. And again, people said, oh, these are left-wing poems you're debunking. You must have a problem with the left-wing Burns. And I, no, I've got no problem with the left-wing Burns. The problem I've got is you putting crap onto Burns that he didn't write. You know, it's as basic as that. But nonetheless, I continued at Strathclyde through that difficult period, 97, where people were trying to get me sacked 
where I was getting hate mail, right. where after that my car was vandalised twice, had computer viruses, I had threats of violence, but I continued there to 2000. I would have remained there comfortably with a number of friends, but a job came up in Scottish literature and I was aware, frankly, Jim, that a university like Glasgow, in terms of the arts and humanities, you just had more elbow room. Right. And I came here... And uh, I've more or less enjoyed it ever since. And I continued fairly prodigiously to publish books, collections, essays on everything really from the medieval period to the present, but especially 18th century. And eventually, 11 years ago, I founded the Centre for Robert Burns Studies, right. which is now attracted, because as you know, this is the game that academics have to play, it's attracted somewhat something like just over four million pounds one way and another. It's created other jobs. It's a research centre. It's got the Oxford University Press edition. It's got other projects attracted to it. And um, during that period, I've also had temporary positions in Wyoming, in Oxford, in South Carolina. It's I'm a tremendously lucky man to have been able to do all that. Yeah, that's it. So, I mean, it's funny because uh, this is just a kind of a side in some sense. Like obviously, mm -hmm. I've known you for a long time. And we grew up and played back together. Uh, but as a public figure, mm -hmm. you're connected with Robert Burns. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. In the last decade or so. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if somebody's talking about Burns, mm -hmm. or somebody's doing a feature about Burns on the telly or whatever, mm -hmm. who did they come to? Well, they come to you. Yeah, there's that gobshite on again. Yes. You know what I mean? It's kind of yeah. weird, kind of... Uh -huh. uh, Weird that that has happened, but it's yeah. probably from your story, you that's made that happen. You know, I think probably uh, it has, even though somewhat accidentally, as was saying earlier, Jim, uh, I, I actually avoided Burns early on. Yeah. And the way in which it's happened is I have consciously built some things, but there are things that are accidental. And the kind of funny story that I never normally tell, people say to me, when did you were you first aware of Burns? My parents took me to Burns Cottage when I was about five. Right. And believe it or not, I remember looking at the portrait and even as a wee boy, thinking there's a general resemblance because oh, right. there has been at various points yeah, right. but right. I've never cultivated that and Burns is very difficult to get into because there's a huge audience for Burns 95% of them are sane right. but 5% of them are maniacs who want to be Burns I've never wanted to be Burns right, right. who model themselves on that I love my job I, I love working on Burns but I don't have a line to pedal on Burns mm -hmm. except what I would call the pure scholarship. Mm -hmm. But there are other people who want me to have their line on Burns, and when I don't, all hell breaks loose. Mm, they're upset. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I think, that's the thing. You know, if you're, if you're seen as a leading light, mm. which you clearly are, then that's that's the sort of thing that just gets people jealous and envious and irritated mm -hmm. yeah. because they think they're the leading light. You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> and, that's, and that's fine. And it's, you know, I always say to people, for all its problems... It's a great thing to work in burn studies because mm -hmm. a lot of people are paying attention. Mm -hmm. And most of them you can have a good conversation with. And most of them, and I mean this really sincerely, because I know a lot of the wider burns movement, most of them I can learn things from. Mm -hmm. There's not many academics that can say, you know, the subject I'm doing, I can learn from about another 200,000 people out there. Yeah, and that's yeah. great. They yeah. bring me information, yeah, they yeah. bring me new finds. They tell me things that make me see things in a new light. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, I know. That's interesting. It's, a, it's an amazing uh, area to be working in. I mean, 
I, I, I'm probably uh, the layman when it comes to Burns, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got the book of poets, poems in the house mm-hmm. and you open it occasionally and you've heard all the usual mm-hmm. subs, uh, usual poems. But the language is quite difficult for somebody like myself who's not read enough mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you look at the back of the book and you figure mm-hmm. it out. <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's interesting to me that something which is quite difficult for modern person like myself who doesn't speak in a... 18th century mm. way mm. that Burns is so incredibly popular. Yeah, know, yeah. Uh, now, you know. He is, and part of the reason I think he's popular, Jim, is because he's a very modern guy who is empathetic or sympathetic with all kinds of people, mm-hmm. different people, women as well as men, but, you know, leave aside his love life because that's slightly problematic. But he's a guy from whom I've learned that identity is complicated. Mm-hmm. And one thing I did, which was slightly mischievous, but also sincere, in 2004, I wrote a book on Robert Burns for the Writers uh, and Their World series, I think that's what it's called, Writers and Their Work series, published in England, and it sold very well. And that book about Burns talks about the way in which Burns, in very sophisticated ways, deals with his own identity and other people's identities and has got this huge sympathy. And that book is deliberately dedicated to two schools, both of which you and I attended, or who were my primary in St Andrews All High right. School. Okay. And if I'm honest, that gesture, while being sincere, is also a slight get it up you going back to my childhood, to those playmates, Protestant, God bless them, who said to me, this isn't your country, <laughs> which I didn't quite understand at the time, but later on realised, I know what they're saying. Yeah. They're saying, you're a tag, you're a papist, you don't belong here. Yeah, yeah. So it gives me great delight to publish a book on Robert Burns, one of the great Scottish icons, dedicated to two Catholic schools where I was aware of identity issues, Burns' identity issues, and say, there you are, tell me I don't belong in Scottish culture now, tell me I don't have a voice. Yeah, yeah, well, that's interesting. Actually, that sounds like a good place to stop this this particular interview, Jerry, because <laughs> we've roamed uh, quite, <laughs> quite, over quite a lot of areas. Yes. So uh, thanks very much. Really, Thank you very really much, John. Appreciate you yeah. sitting down and chatting. It's been me. nice talking to you again. Yeah, it's been nice to see you. Yeah, likewise. Well, there you go. You can probably tell that I really enjoyed talking to Jerry there, and uh, it was just a really great interview. I just enjoyed meeting him again and uh, hearing his story. So that's the end of another Jim and Pat's Glasgow West End chat. Uh, as I forgot to say at the start, we are keen to hear your questions. So if you've got any questions for us, myself or Pat, please send them to either jim at glasgowestend.co.uk or pat at glasgowestend.co.uk or send them on the Twitter to Pat's, Pat's Twitter account, which is at Glasgow's West End. Okay, catch you the next time. Bye.